Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 13. We're in the final pericope of this wonderful chapter, verses 11 through 14. Dan is correct. The title of the message is God's wake-up call to believers. Romans 13, 11 through 14. In 1993, I was uh, in the summer between my junior and senior years of college. I became employed by a Baptist boys camp, specifically Central Hills Royal Ambassadors Camp in extreme rural Atala County, Mississippi. Uh, the camp was beautifully situated deep within the piney woods, so far away you could actually see the stars at night. And as a camp counselor, I was responsible for between 12 and 18 boys each week living in the woods in army surplus tents, which meant that for 10 consecutive weeks, I lived in a tent in the woods. And one has a lot of time to reflect and pray and seek the Lord in such living conditions. And it was through that time of prayer that the Lord impressed upon me his desire for me to be one of his pastors. It was hot and humid, and we had all manner of critters and insects. And sleep most nights did not come quickly or easily. But I found out the morning wake-up call always did come quickly. Our camp director drove an ancient Chevy Suburban, to which he had affixed the largest loudspeaker I've ever laid eyes on. And every morning about 6.30, he drove through the uh, campgrounds for the wake-up call, and it was the same wake-up call every morning for 10 weeks. It was a recording of the instrumental theme of the 1970s television show Sanford and Son. <laughs> and he played it at the loudest volume possible, and I hate that song till today. But Romans 13, 11 through 14 is God's wake-up call for believers. Let's hear it now. Paul says, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to you than when we believed. The night's almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, nor in sexual promiscuity or sensuality, but in strife and jealousy, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. So Paul starts this section by saying, do this. And instantly we ask, do what? That is, follow his instructions concerning Christian living that he has listed in the previous two chapters. He starts in chapter 12. He says, here's the first thing. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. And then he says to view other Christians as members of the same body that you belong to, with Christ as the head. He even talks about our relationship with lost people, specifically those who hate us. We are to rejoice when they rejoice and weep when they weep and we're to meet their physical needs and we're never to take our own vengeance. He even talks about a relationship to the government, how we're to pay our taxes. And it's not just the government that we're to pay our bills to, it's to anyone we saw last week 
to whom we owe money. And then he says, you're to continually pay this perpetual debt of love to all humanity. The question that is begged is why? What would motivate Christians to live so differently than the world? Well, he tells us the answer to that question. He says, knowing the time. That is because God has given you signs about where you are in human history, you don't have time to waste. He says, we Christians know the time. Now, what does it mean to know the time? He's not talking about chronological time. It's uh, 1135, by the way. He's not talking about that. He's talking about where we are in the scope of human history. Now, if you've ever taught one of your teenagers how to drive a car, uh, it's a good practice not only to teach them the mechanics of turning the wheel and staying in their lane, but how to navigate, especially in the treacherous streets of Dallas-Fort Worth. I was talking to one of my children the other day about learning to drive, and I said, you know, what really helped me was that when I first moved to Dallas-Fort Worth, I memorized a map in my mind. And wherever I'm going, I try to picture myself inside that map. Now, I didn't memorize every single side street. That would be impossible in areas large as ours. But I memorized the major highways and thoroughfares and arterial streets so that wherever I am in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, I'm never far from one of those places I recognize. And eventually, I'll run into one of those boulevards, and guess what? I can find my way home. Well, this is what Paul is saying, that we need to know where we are in God's roadmap of history. It's not that we have a crystal ball and we know every single thing that's going to happen as he does, but he gives us enough information to know where we stand in the grand scheme of history. That's how Trevin Wax defines knowing the time. He says it's a proper understanding of where we are in the grand sweep of history. We need men and women who understand the times that we live in. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, King David was on the run from King Saul who wanted to kill him. And he was out in the countryside and people heard he was out there and they were attracted to his leadership. And they believed God wanted him to be the king. And so representatives from the various Jewish tribes began to come to David offering their services and skills. And in 1 Chronicles 12 verse 32, it says the sons of Issachar, that's one of the tribes came men who understood the time with knowledge of what Israel should do. Their chiefs were 200 and all the kinsmen were in their command. 200 men came from this tribe and they were noted, not like the other men, for their ability with a bow and arrow or with a sword or with uh, art. They were known as men who understood the time in which they lived. And friends, if there's anything our world needs, it's more sons of Issachar or daughters of Issachar, who knows where we are in the scope of human history. And Paul says it begins with this wake-up call. Wake up, Christian. Verse 11, it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Now, you kids, that sounds like something mom would say about 7 o'clock tomorrow morning, right? Wake up. It's later than you think, she might say. One of the things that I envy about younger people and by the way, people who are younger are more and more to me these days. One of the things I envy about people younger than myself is their ability to sleep through the night. Those of us of a certain age often awake long before the alarm clock goes off. And that happened to me this morning, in fact. I think for me, it goes back to my seminary days 25 years ago when I was working several part-time jobs to pay my tuition. And 
The worst job I had was uh, throwing a paper out for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I say it was worse because I had to pick up my papers at their facility at 3.30 a.m., 365 days a year. And so I'd get up about three and put on a cap and go pick up my papers, and then I had to roll them together and put them in that plastic sleeve, and then I had to go out and throw 450 papers in time to make it back to my first class at 8 o'clock on campus. And it was a tough way to make a living. And do you know what? My first customer got his paper at 3.45 a.m., and he was often waiting in his driveway in a bathrobe and a hot cup of coffee, <laughs> looking at his watch as if I was late. Hard to sleep when we get older, isn't it? Now, sleep is a good gift from the Lord. He gives it to us as an all-good gift, but in this case, it's a negative thing. Solomon wrote in the Old Testament that there is a time for everything under heaven, but Paul's clear implication is that now is not the time for Christians to be asleep. He says it's already time for you to awaken. Now he is writing to believers here. How do we know? Well, Paul never talks about lost people in terms of being asleep. How does he address unbelievers? They are dead. There's a big difference between being dead and being asleep, I hope you know. Christians can be genuinely born again. They can be made alive in Christ and yet be snoozing, be unaware of what's going on around them. Paul says, wake up, believers, if you're truly alive. And it's not just that we need to wake up because of our apathy to where we are in the scope of human history. We also need to be encouraged to perk up. That's the second point. Verse 11b says, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed the night is almost gone and the day is near. I think fundamentally Paul is warning us not to waste time, but he's also encouraging us. And he says, your salvation is nearer than when you believed. Now, I know a lot of Christians who I would describe as frustrated and even depressed. True Christians. They are frustrated primarily by their own lack of progress and sanctification. Maybe they've known the Lord 20, 30 years, but they have these habits of sin they've still struggled with. They're depressed because of the condition of the culture. They look and remember a better day, and they're depressed that we're going backwards, seemingly. He says, perk up, Christian. Not just wake up, but perk up. Be encouraged, in other words. Your salvation is nearer than it was yesterday. Now, what does he mean by that? We usually talk about salvation in terms of past tense. I was saved when I was seven years old in my case. What does it mean? It's not here yet. Well, you know that we teach from this pulpit that there are three perspectives on our salvation, a past, a present, and a future. In the past, there came a moment in time, hopefully for each of you, that God through His Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel convicted you of your own sin his perfect righteousness and the judgment that awaits us in the future. He gave you the faith to believe on Christ. You did. You repented of sins and you were declared by God's judicial act through justification, not guilty. You were saved in the past. But since that moment, until this good day, if you're still alive, he has been saving you. You're in the process of sanctification. He's making you more and more like Christ. And one day, thank the Lord... We're going to be done with that process where we're going to be in the presence of Jesus, not only free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but the very presence of sin. We call that glorification. 
That's what he's talking about here. He says your glorification is nearer today than it was yesterday. And there's a lot of people who try to set dates for the Lord's second coming, don't they? And they try to say that uh, I have pinned it down to this day and month and year. Uh, those people have one thing in common. They're crooks. They're liars. They're charlatans. We're not to pick dates on a calendar. You can rest assured when people do, they're lying to you. But we are to know where we are in the scheme of human history. So in what sense is our salvation near? I think in two clear senses. One, the obvious, Christ's coming is closer now than ever. Now, I'm no mathematician, nor am I a philosopher. Um, but even I know that we're 24 hours closer to redemption than we were yesterday. <laughs> but I think also he's talking about our own mortality. It's sobering to think that we're one day closer to death, each of us than we were yesterday. But in either case, we're winners if we know the Lord. That's why Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul struggled internally. He was ready to go to heaven all the time, but he knew that God had a work for him to do here. And so he had this internal struggle. We need to remind it of what Psalm 30 verse 5 says, weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in what? The morning. And he says, the morning's almost here. And so the weeping is almost over. We're almost to glorification, so we don't have time to waste. And because our salvation is nearer than it ever has been, it ought to affect the way we live. Thirdly, there ought to be some things that we're willing to give up. Verse 12b says, Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. He says we need to give up the deeds of darkness. The Bible talks about there are two families in the world, the children of Satan and the children of God. It talks about two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God's dear son, the kingdom of light. So he says the deeds of darkness are sin. We ought to give them up, lay them aside like a dirty garment. Romans 8, 13, he says, mortify, put to death the deeds of the flesh. John three nineteen, light came into the world. That is the person work of Jesus. But the world loved darkness. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Men love their sin. But he says, as Christians, because the day is approaching, we need to give up sin. The nearness of the Lord's coming and the nearness of our own death should motivate our progress in sanctification, which is the separation of ourselves from sin. The Bible rightly says that it's appointed unto man once to die. And then comes the judgment. And we usually apply that to lost people, and rightly so. One day the Bible says the books are going to be open. Of every word we've ever said, every thought we've ever thought, every deed we've ever done, we're going to be judged according to those if we don't know Jesus. And then the book, singular, is going to be open. The Lamb's book of life. And whoever's name is not written there will be cast into the lake of fire, created for Satan and the demons. But Christians also face a judgment one day. It's the judgment not of heaven or hell, that's been decided. The judgment of rewards, the Bema Seat judgment. And whatever we've done in the name of Jesus, if it was rightly motivated, is going to be purified as if through the fire, like gold and silver and precious stones. But whatever we've done wrongly motivated or through sinful desires is going to be burned up as so much wood, hay, and stubble. All of us are going to be judged. So we need to stop wasting our time. We need to, as Ephesians 5, 16 says, redeem the time. Make the most of every opportunity we have to serve Jesus. The night is almost over. 
Morning's almost here. And then he says, fourthly, we need to shape up Christians. Verse 13 says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Now, people of all ages commit those sins, don't they? But these are what David calls the sins of youth, the sins of drunkenness, uh, primarily because people who stay drunk all the time don't live to see old age for the most part. The sins of promiscuity tend to be the sins of youth. All of them are the deeds of the darkness. So I want to talk to young people specifically for a moment or two, if I may. There is a lie that has been foisted upon your generation, and it's the same lie that was foisted upon all of us when we were your age. It's the lie that our culture has been telling for a long time, maybe since the dawn of time, and that is this. Here's the lie, that it is your individual birthright, nearly your duty, to sow wild oats as a young person. In your teenage years and certainly into your 20s, the lie is that you need to live it up. You need to party and drink and engage in sexual promiscuity and explore all the things this world has to offer before you're too old to enjoy it. And I want you to know that is a lie. Paul says, let us, he's including young people too, all Christians, let us behave properly as in the day. That is, I take it, behave with the knowledge and recognition of God's presence and knowledge of all you do and say and think. There are things that people do in the darkness because they don't want to be seen during the day. He says we ought to behave all the time as if there is a million candle light shining on us because it is. And that light is God's omniscience and His glory and His holiness. Paul says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Listen, Paul wasn't listing those sins out of the air. He knew to whom he was writing, a group of people who lived in the city of Rome. This was the way people were living all around them. This is the lifestyle many of them were saved out of. You say, well, this was 2,000 years ago, Pastor. Surely our day is much different than theirs. No, it's not. They lived in a bustling large city full of activity and temptation, just like you and I do. Now, I'll admit the technology is more advanced today, and we get where we're going a lot faster, but we do the same sins when we get there. So behave properly, Christian. Young person, that includes you. So finally, Paul says, not only should we wake up, perk up, give up, shape up, we also should dress up. Look at verse 14. But, that means instead, by the way, instead of drunkenness and debauchery, instead, take those things off, instead put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Anytime we see that conjunction but it means in lieu of or in place of. The imagery, again, is of getting dressed in the morning. So first thing you got to do before you get dressed is wake up. Don't get dressed in your sleep. Realize where we are in human history, that the time is short. We don't have time to waste. We need to redeem every moment. And if we're frustrated or depressed about what's going on in our own lives or the world, we ought to be encouraged. Perk up, Christian, once you wake up. 
because your salvation's 12 hours closer than it was when he went to bed last night. Give up sin. What do you think he means by giving up sin? Well, he said, don't make any provision for it. Here's what we do, I think, though. We say, now, Lord, I'm going to give you my life, my heart. I'm a living sacrifice, except for this particular area of my life. I've made a lot of progress. You know, you know, I don't cuss like I once did, Lord. Don't drink nearly as much. I'm a better father and a husband. But you keep poking me in the ribs about this area of my life. And, you know, that's really unfair, Lord, because I've done so well in these others. Don't I get this one area? And the answer to that is absolutely not. See, what it means to recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the Lordship over every single square inch of your life. There are no lock closets, no areas in which he's not allowed or able to access. You're coming to him, as I often say, with empty pockets, open hands. You're not negotiating. You don't have any leverage. God doesn't lack anything you could bring to the table. You're coming to him in, under terms of absolute surrender. This is what he means to make no provision for the flesh. It means clothing yourself in Christ every day. What does that mean? It means putting on his character. Not in a hypocritical or a fake way. We know people who put on airs. We know people who put you on to pretend they're something they're not. That's not what he's saying. He means every day you're conscious of the fact that you are representing Christ to a lost and dying world. Jesus is not here physically. He's at the right hand of the Father. One day he's coming again. He will be with us physically, but until then, we're the only Jesus most people see. And so you behave in such a way as that when you rub shoulders with lost people, they know they've been in the presence of Christ through your speech, through your attitude, and through your behavior. The Bible even speaks of carrying the aroma of Christ wherever we go. People know we've been with Jesus by our lifestyle. This is what it means to put on Christ. Put on his character. Wear it as a garment wherever you go so that a lost world can observe it and respond to it. Paul says in Galatians, put on Christ. He's speaking of our new nature. When we talk about baptism, burying the old, recognizing all things have become new. That is, when we put on Christ, we put on his mercy. We put on his grace. We put on his holiness. We put on his meekness. Go read Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes and you'll see the accoutrements of Christ. Simply put, to put on Christ means living life to please him every day. And making no provision to please yourself. That's the flesh See, theologians talk about we battle three major enemies in the world as Christians. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And we tend to overemphasize one or the other. In other words, everything that happens, well, that's that world system that's drawing me away. It's not my fault. Or uh, many of our charismatic friends see a, a demon under every bush, right? Every time they say a cuss word, a demon made them do it. Or the devil made me do it. But the truth is, if you're anything like me, most of the time... Your biggest problem is that person in the mirror, right? Who wants what he wants or wants what she wants. And he said, you got to put that guy to death every day. You got to take off the old garments of sin and habits and you got to put on Jesus every 
day. In fact, it's so important, he says it twice, two different ways in these three verses. First of all, he says, take off sin and put on the armor of light. And I was reading that this week. I thought, what's the implication there? On one place, he says, put on Jesus. And another place, he put on the armor of light. And I discovered those are the same two things, right? And what he's telling us when he tells us to put on armor is that when we wake up and when we perk up and when we give up sin and when we shape up and we dress up, it's not waking up to go to a nice leisurely brunch down at the club. When he tells us to wake up so that we can put on armor, he's saying wake up and go to war. That's what a lot of Christians need to hear. That's the wake up call. This is reveille. This isn't a camp counselor saying get up and go to breakfast. This is our commander in chief saying wake up and go to war. What did Paul say about going to war as a Christian? We don't battle flesh and blood. It's not lost people that we fight. We battle principalities and powers. And truth is, Paul understood, we battle this guy. We battle sin of the flesh. That's why the Bible says we're to put it to death, mortify the deeds of the flesh every day. God has provided everything we need to do that according to Ephesians chapter 6. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with preparation of the gospel. But we have to consciously Put it on every day. Take off the deeds of the flesh. Leave no provision for the sin. Put on Jesus. And you do that every day for 60, 70, 80 years. <laughs> you'll find you make progress in sanctification. You find you don't fear death and dying like you used to. You find yourself thinking like Paul. To be absent from this body <laughs> is to be present with the Lord. Let's pray and ask his help. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It's clear, convicting. We need to wake up. Time is short. The sun is uh, beginning to rise. The time for our sin is past. We need to make no provision for the flesh. Jesus is coming soon. We need to tell everyone we can. Father, if he doesn't come in our lifetime, we still need to be making plans. Father, I remember what Donald Gray Barnhouse famously said is that we need to believe that Jesus could come in our lifetime and we need to plan as if he might not. And that's why we build buildings and playgrounds and parking lots. It's, it's not because we hope to Use it for 50 years. Lord, I pray that Jesus comes before we even finish the project. But Lord, he may not. If our ancestors had taken that notion, we wouldn't have a place to worship today. But because they knew that it's possible, because they did not know the date, that they could die before you come, that they need to make provision for us. And they did. So help us to do the same. But Lord, our overarching prayer is what Christians have been praying for 2,000 years. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Encourage your heart, Lord, because whether it is through His coming or whether it's through our own passing, what we know for sure, as every believer does, is that we're a day closer today than our salvation than we were yesterday. 
May that encourage us and motivate us, Lord, not to waste our time, not to give even passing interest in the things of this body. Make no provision for the flesh, but live for Jesus every day. And Father, when all 2,000 members of this church do that, we believe we'll see revival and awakening. And Lord, we pray you do it for your own namesake. Through Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.